1: Big guess
2: The big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brinkenridge, Weekdays 1230 to 3. 770 CHQR. We will always defend the rights of Canadians to peaceful assembly and to freedom of expression. But these blockades need to end. And unfortunately, conservative politicians continue to encourage the leaders of these blockades. Well, that was part of the exchange in the House of Commons this afternoon as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau defended his decision to invoke the Emergencies Act in order to deal with some of the remaining protests and blockades uh, that are happening in the country. And I say remaining because obviously we've seen some resolution. The Ambassador Bridge in Windsor was opened uh, on Sunday, late Sunday. Earlier today, the protest around Coots, the blockade, that was dismantled as well. The situation in Ottawa, however, remains unresolved. The federal government believes that this will help give authorities some additional tools to deal with that situation. The RCMP and the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, are going to take the lead on that. Uh, Invoking the Emergencies Act does give authorities some additional tools in terms of getting towing companies to uh, use their resources to move some of these big rigs. Uh, There will be some zones established where public assembly would not be allowed. Uh, There will be some financial implications as well. Give the government some ability to go after, uh, suspend or freeze accounts suspected of supporting the blockades. So we're waiting to see the regulations and the finer details on exactly how all of this is going to be used. But this is the first time since this legislation was brought in in 1988 uh, that has been invoked by the federal government. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association has some concerns around all of this, whether the threshold has been met for using this legislation in the first place and what the implications of all of this might be. Uh, joining us to discuss uh, some of those concerns, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Abby Deschman, uh, who is director of the Criminal Justice Program for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. CCLA.org is the website. Abby, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh,
0: Thank you. My pleasure.
2: Let's start, first of all, with the justification here. The order in council uh, was uh, made public today, uh, laying out the government's reason, its rationale for why this has been invoked. What do you make of the government's case so far?
0: Well, you know, it's it's confusing, um, in part because it it lists a bunch of things that uh, as I see it, aren't national emergencies that are contemplated under the act that they say they're using. So they talk about the blockades um, by both people and vehicles across Canada. But then they also talk about the adverse economic impacts of the blockades, the impact mm-hmm. on our trading partners and our relationship with the United States, uh, the breakdown in supply chain, Um And all of those economic and, you know, international trading impacts are certainly concerns. You know, uh, don't want to minimize the impacts of these protests on the economy. Uh, But that's not the type of urgent situation of national emergency um, that would justify these types of extraordinary powers. The Emergencies Act federally, it talks about war. It talks about pandemics that cannot be managed by the provinces uh, the way COVID has. Um, It talks about... Uh, violence and civil unrest that is so serious that it is a national emergency that the provinces can't handle using existing laws. And that's where we really have some serious concerns about whether the threshold, the legal threshold for these extraordinary powers given to the federal government has been met in this situation.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, how subjective is all of this? Uh, you know, I mean, if the government believes it, is that sufficient? Or, you know, does does uh, at some point the government fall short of what's required in the legislation?
0: I mean, you know, all law is to a certain extent subjective, right? There can be different mm-hmm. interpretations, but I actually think this act is pretty clear. Um, it has to be a situation that the provinces can't handle under existing laws. And as you said in the opening, we actually have seen... Uh, several police services handling protests across the country as they do um, day in and day out in Canada um, using their existing laws and powers. Uh, so there are certainly very challenging protests that remain, Ottawa being the prime example. But is this really a situation where our existing laws and powers could not be used, uh, to resolve that situation? The police have an enormous amount of power, um, should they choose to use it. And, uh, you know, the fact that they haven't, some people can criticize that. Um, that doesn't mean that our existing laws aren't available aren't up to the challenge, um, and that it would be justifiable to invoke a national emergency um, with extraordinary powers to the federal government.
2: Right. Well, even if the federal government can justify, even if they can make a credible case that so the threshold is met, what are the implications of the, the act itself and the powers it bestows upon government and, and government agencies? You know, the, the act is is clear that this needs to be charter compliant. the act certainly limits the the scope of this there there is oversight, but what what are the implications here still for for civil liberties in this country
0: yeah it's it's an enormous concentration of power in the executive branch, so the act gives. Cabinet, so that's the Prime Minister and uh, the ministers in the federal government, the power to pass orders um, without them first having to, you know, be approved by Parliament, and the types of orders that seems to be contemplated. You know, we haven't seen the details, uh, but they do include freezing people's assets, freezing people's bank accounts if they provided support um, to the protests. There's you know no indication about you know minimum threshold of support. Is it five dollars that you donated? Is it dropping somebody off at a protest? Both of those mm-hmm. are forms of support and um, and there's also no indication about you know how extensive the asset um, freezing and seizures are. The, the the comparison that we have is the terrorist financing legislation where, people's bank accounts are completely frozen um, if they're on a designated terrorist list. And there's no judicial oversight um, that's contemplated You know, in, in what the government has talked about so far. The, they've also talked about um, orders restricting people's movements, ending uh, public assemblies, uh, requiring people to provide certain types of services. A very, very broad um, set of potential orders that could really impact anybody across the country, right? The the declaration of emergency is not limited to Ottawa or the border. They said it is a national emergency that applies across the country, and they have also not specified that it's limited to, you know, the truck convoys that we are focused on. Um, There is, you know, no specific language that we've seen so far in the legal orders uh, that would limit its scope uh, to the focus of, you know, the media and public attention currently.
2: So theoretically, or at least conceivably, when these powers in effect, governments could use them against other groups or movements that maybe have nothing to do with this uh, immediate situation?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the real, you know, that's one of the real threats of this type of, you know, very concentrated, very broad power, that you are focused on one thing, but it actually gets used um in a you know, very broad way, against a multitude of people and movements. and um it also sets a precedent. You know we uh, see thousands of protests in Canada every year. The vast majority are entirely peaceful. Many are destructive. Some of them are extremely disruptive. And then we've had examples of protests that have lasted for months that have intensely disrupted entire cities. Quebec is a really good example. Um, Quebec was rocked by a summer full of enormous student protests. They used their democratic mechanisms to respond to that. They certainly used their police to respond to that. We were critical of many of those responses. But they didn't invoke a state of emergency. Uh, They used their normal legislative democratic um, and then those were challenged in courts and at times found unconstitutional. You know that is the normal course of events um, when uh, we are faced with uh, very very disruptive protests. It really is deeply concerning and unprecedented to use national emergencies legislation to respond to this type of activity.
2: Well, of course, a few days ago, I mean, we had the province of Ontario declaring a state of emergency, which which in, in its own way at the provincial level, uh, you know, empowers the government with some emergency powers. Is, is there some concern at, at the provincial level, too?
0: Yeah, there is concern at the provincial level. And it, in part, it's because of the breadth of that order. Um, again, it, it doesn't specifically target uh, the border or Ottawa. It targets blockades of critical infrastructure, including highways. It, it, many protests especially in small towns when the main street might also be a highway are going to block roads right the, mm-hmm. that is The nature of a lot of democratic protests is that they are disruptive. That is the way that people get the message out when they don't have ready access to media or a press conference on Parliament Hill in lots of instances. So that is core democratic activity that needs to be protected and defended. And when you get very broad powers, concentrated um, emergency orders, uh, there is a real risk that you will be eroding democratic freedoms in a way that is unjustifiable.
2: Well, and that's the thing. Obviously, we need to see what's in the regulations, and it's possible that this will indeed be very limited in scope, will only remain in effect for a short period of time. I mean, even if all of those things do happen, we're still left with the precedent, right? We're, we're still left with uh, maybe a, a flimsy basis for invoking this, uh, a lower threshold for invoking this. So regardless of what happens going forward, that, that precedent has already been set. So we already have that, that to be concerned about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have seen, as I said, lots of protests that it can be intensely disruptive. You can think of the I don't know more movements, uh, climate change protests, indigenous land defenders um, you know, Black Lives Matter protests. We have many, many, many disruptive protests across this country um, and at times governments. Uh, object vociferously to those protests, maybe because of the content of what the protesters are saying or the particular communities that they are disrupting. We do not want our governments to normalize turning to emergency management uh, tools, to national emergencies or provincial emergencies, in order to deal with incredibly disruptive but overall, by and large, peaceful protests, nonviolent protests. Um, and uh, We are living in a pandemic, Uh, we are used to emergency orders in a way that um, has never happened in the past, and I do very much wonder if we would have seen this type of emergency legislation if we hadn't seen two years of public health emergency orders and become a bit used to the incredible concentration of power um, that comes with this type of legislation.
2: Yeah, important points. We'll leave it there. Uh, much more is mentioned. C.C.L.A. dot org. Abby, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciated.
0: Thank you. My pleasure.
2: All right. All the best. That's uh, Abby Deschman with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, uh, the association's director of the criminal justice program. So they're concerned about the low threshold. You know, we are setting the bar, the precedent we're setting here, the normalization maybe of this kind of a response. And yeah, look, I mean, there's all kinds of different arguments about the double standards here. Why didn't we see a tougher response two years ago, the rail blockades? You know, I saw a video going around today saying, look, you know, police are shaking hands with the protesters in coots. Boy, look at how mean they were to the uh, G20 protesters. So you got both sides claiming double standard here. But it is true. We, we've set a bit of a precedence here. So if we see, what if we see rail blockades happen again? What if we see port blockades? What if we see... Uh, this kind of tactic being used to try to stop construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, for example. like What's the expectation in terms of the government response? And yes, my goodness, a lot of that is going to be clouded by all of the hypocrisy on all sides here. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the CCLA raises some some interesting points. Obviously, in terms of how this is used and how long this is used, we're going to have to to keep a close eye on all of this. But uh, already we've established maybe a troubling uh, threshold or precedent here. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on uh, what's turning out to be a pretty busy and eventful Tuesday afternoon. We'll get back to the phones in just a bit here. But, you know, there's the question of how all of this is playing out in in the eyes of Canadians. And some big questions here. Part of it is leadership. The prime minister has obviously very much changed his approach to all of this. Is that in part a political motivation? And how do Canadians feel about the leadership the Prime Minister has shown in all of this? And the numbers aren't encouraging for the Prime Minister. Maybe it speaks to why we've seen a change in direction here. There's also the other question too, apart from all of this, that are Canadians ready to start to ease restrictions, move away from from restrictions? Because certainly we're seeing provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan initially, You know, today we've had Quebec and BC outlining their plans to move forward, Ontario as well. And certainly it appears as though Canadians are eager to start to to get away from restrictions and, and maybe in part, you know, some of these protests have brought that conversation to the forefront. Uh, some recent polls from Meru Public Research uh, shed some interesting lights on some of these questions. More at MeruGroup.net, M A R U, MeruGroup.net. Joining us uh, on the line this afternoon is uh, John Wright, Veteran Polster, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. John, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
3: Great to be with you, Rob.
2: Obviously, you know, the coming days will will give us a better indication of how Canadians feel about what's happened over the last 24 hours, but as as we headed into this week, John, what were your numbers telling you about how Canadians were judging the Prime Minister's
3: handling of all of this? Well, we actually had um, a good character assessment of him specifically on this issue. Only about, um, I would say, two in ten, maybe a little bit less than that, felt that he'd uh, risen to the occasion and dealt with uh, most of this stuff well. Um, the country was split on other aspects of, you know, how he had uh, looked um, overall. But I have to say that the character numbers and how he has dealt with whether he looked strong, whether he looked, uh, you know, like he was demonstrating being a prime minister or not. The numbers were not great for him. This has really uh, pulled him down a fair bit. Well, was it was it the
2: the weakness? Was it the perception that, that he was maybe politicizing this? Where, where did he seem to go wrong with Canadians on this?
3: I think he's asked critical questions. The first thing was when you've got a backdrop of Parliament Hill with a group of rigs sitting out the front, there's a perception among Canadians that, you know, he, and wrongly so, uh, that, you know, the Prime Minister can walk out and say, get off my lawn, get out of my driveway. Well, it's gone for three and a half weeks, and all Canadians see is that just beyond where his office is, there's an intransigent group of of uh, truckers. So there's, you know, it's not as if it's playing out all the time on the Windsor Bridge or in Toronto. It's right outside the Parliament Building. So I think that's one. There's a sense that regardless of the police and the issues around municipalities and things like that, there was a sense of impotence. Number two, I think that in the last election campaign, when you go back to the polling that was done then, the invective that was hurled at the group of folks by ostracizing them, and then using the same lines in Parliament and otherwise to characterize this group came back to haunt him. I mean, it it isn't something that you can negotiate with because it's a disparate group of people, but there seemed to be a sense that he was in, invincible to castigating them and not having some kind of response that was going to be negative. So I think those are the two things that really came about in the last couple of weeks, and that is sense that what he was saying to them wasn't working and then he left the scene for a few days but by the time he got back on the scene there was nothing he could do to try and remedy the situation and again i'm wondering whether or not in the bringing into the emergencies act itself whether it's actually going to render anything other than the rcmp going into the ottawa police constabulary and being able to you know fortify that group but he isn't able Mm -hmm. to do things to kind of get that group of truckers out of his own front lawn. And I think that's one of the biggest problems.
2: Right. So a lot of the damage, seems like a lot of the damage is done in in terms of his political reputation, but does any of this salvage that? Does any of this, you know, the idea that we're taking a firmer stand address some of the concerns that Canadians have raised?
3: Well, I don't think anybody sees the Emergency Act as a firmer stand. I mean, and I don't think even those of us who have Uh, been around for a while i had 30 years in politics i'm not sure that this does anything as i said except that peter slowly has resigned as the head of the police department in ottawa which allows others to kind of step in and i would suspect that all of the police that were down in windsor at the ambassador bridge were put on buses and moved somewhere just out of town where they've been training at a defense base or something but it hasn't caused anything at the moment so Mm -hmm. does he wear this i think so um, You know, the longer that they stay in place in downtown Ottawa, the more that the individual citizens of that city, you know, get really angry. I think it does wash over him, but you know, I don't, can you recover from this? Look, it, it's always about the alternative, you vote for an election campaign, but you have to wonder whether or not the caucus members in the Liberal Party, which we've already seen two, break from the ranks, you know, are feeling some unease about this and we'll see how it plays out. but. It hasn't been a good uh, month for the prime minister, that's for, for sure, both personally and politically.
2: Right, and there's the question not just of the public mood around these protests, but the broader question of the public mood around government restrictions and, and pandemic mm-hmm. measures, right? And, and I think a lot of the premiers seem to be reading the public mood because we're getting a lot of announcements about easing and ending certain restrictions. So what, what are your numbers telling you about where Canadians are at on that?
3: Well, I can tell you, first off, is that British Columbia is the least likely to want any changes. Uh, I mean, they they are the most, and I'm watching Dr. Bonnie Henry, you know, give her talk right now as we're sitting here, and she's obviously, you know, trying to, um, you know, move forward with some kind of lessening of restrictions. But the, the majority of people in this country now start to pitch forward. We're not against mandates. I think there's a clear distinction here. We're not against mandates if, in fact, our health care system becomes beleaguered, if your community health care system becomes inac- inaccessible. I think what we're starting to do, though, is to pitch forward on a number of the, the polling questions. You can see where people are saying, you know what, if we're going to live with this, we're going to have to start living with it. You know, we're, we're going to have to stop running from it and dealing with it. We've been double, triple vaccinated. You know, maybe it's time that we start relaxing some of these restrictions and, and start moving forward. That's not incompatible with the research that says that if, in fact, we have an outbreak and if, in fact, it beleaguers our health care system, that we won't go back to those things. But I think what you're seeing right now are people saying that the Omicron swept through. We were showing by the second week of January that close to 40% of Canadians knew somebody in their family or their friends who had this it democratized the virus most people saw that people who got it either had sniffles or that at least they didn't end up in hospital It it's kind of like all right i have the fortitude i've had the vaccinations i'm prepared mm-hmm. to start moving forward so you know we're moving forward cautiously in a very canadian way some provinces more than others but there's still a sense that we're we need to move forward and that's i think where we are in the inflection of following this entire case and they, the health ministers and everybody else are starting to fall into line with public view and saying, "Yep, yeah, let's let's open the door. Let's see what it's like outside."
2: Yeah, some interesting responses, and I wonder if maybe you see in some provinces that that residents feel governments are acting too fast or too slow. I mean, Saskatchewan's on the low end on the public opinion side and wanting restrictions gone, yet Saskatchewan's government's been acting quite aggressively. Conversely, Quebec. You see 71% uh, saying the government should lift restrictions, and, and Quebec has had a lot of restrictions in place. So some really interesting findings as you go province to province here.
3: Yeah, it's very regional. Uh, we have to remember that, yes, Saskatchewan, in fact, uh, is, is, um, has had the most open doors. We also know that the mm-hmm. premier's taken a hit of 10 points in terms of his personal approval in the last quarter, so he's paid a price in part for that. He was one of the first ones to actually come forward with a plan which Ontario picked up and started to move towards. Look, there, each province has had to adapt in its own way. I was down my my son, our youngest is at Dalhousie University in Halifax, um, in second year, and, and I was down to see him last week. And i got to tell you, after having gone on the plane and then stayed in a hotel room for the first time in two years and then gone out amongst the people out there, it's, it's far more open than it is in Ontario. It did take a day to get used to that, got to tell you. It took a day to understand that my, my son was in a pub and everybody was dancing and there's loud music and booming away, whereas here, I mean, you'd be lucky to get anybody, you know, over a handful of people in any place. There are different experiences across the country. People are going to be more challenged in certain places. But the reality is that we're starting to pitch forward in our mindset, and I see us moving out of this but very cautiously but if in fact, it's, as I said, the safety valve here is the healthcare system, that if it gets beleaguered, we know what to do. But I think now what we're finding is many people across this country—I'd say a majority—are uh, saying we can make our adult decisions. It's okay if we wear our mask in public. If somebody else doesn't want to wear it, we can look after ourselves. There's a fair bit of that in this data here.
2: Yes, yeah, some fascinating numbers, and I'm, I'm sure some really interesting, important questions to, to ask Canadians in the days and weeks ahead here. More, as mentioned, MaruGroup.net, M-A-R-U, MaruGroup.net. John, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the insight.
3: Rob, always a pleasure. Take care.
2: Likewise, you as well. John Wright, a veteran pollster, executive vice president of Maru Public Opinion. So, yeah, the, the numbers are, are interesting on, on the question where Canadians are out on restrictions. Uh, in particular, as it pertains to the prime minister's handling of this situation, pretty ugly looking numbers for the prime minister there which honestly if you look back over the past couple of weeks it it doesn't seem unfair honestly they've they've really not responded well both in terms of you know being prepared for it first of all responding to it second of all and just how he's attempted to you know capitalize and and weaponize you know the politics of all of this and look he's not the only one guilty of that but i mean look you're the prime minister of the country right So as you've been hearing this afternoon, the federal government is changing its approach to travel. So Canadians will no longer be recommended that they avoid non-essential travel. So that recommendation is gone. So the federal government will not officially be discouraging travel. And they are changing the testing requirements as well, which I think have, have been or certainly have the effect of discouraging travel. It's hard to find PCR tests in some locations, and they can be expensive. As of the end of February, vaccinated travelers entering Canada will no longer need to have a PCR test result. Now, there is still a testing requirement. However, the option of using a rapid antigen test will now be available as of february 28th that will need to be done within 24 hours of departure though instead of the 72 hours for a pcr test Uh, but certainly it would be easier to find and much more affordable i think for travelers to have that option of a rapid test So what is the impact of all of this? And are things moving in the right direction insofar as the travel and the tourism industry is concerned? Well, joining us for some thoughts, some reaction to the announcement today, very pleased to welcome to the program Beth Potter, who is CEO and President of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. Beth, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
1: Great. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah, I think there have been, you know, Increasing calls, latter calls for the federal government to make some changes. Last week, the federal health minister indicated that indeed some changes were coming. So, your initial impression, your reaction to what you heard today?
1: Um, a bit of a sigh of relief uh, that they're finally uh, making this announcement today. Um, we, you know, this is a conversation we've been having with government for months, uh, and the science has certainly backed up this move, uh, and so we're very, very pleased to see. Uh, the
2: You know the steps that they 've taken today, as for the testing requirement what what has been the impact of that? I mean obviously, Canadians were still able to travel uh, they were not prevented from traveling, but certainly that that requirement to have the pcr test result was was a burden on many what what 's your sense of how that impacted uh, the tourism the travel industry
1: so it was a significant impact um, we certainly saw. Uh, the cost, the, you know, the added cost for uh, folks that were uh, going on leisure vacations um, go up significantly. You know, for a family of four, it could be as much as twelve hundred dollars. You know, in addition to the rest of the cost of their vacation. But more importantly, um, it, what it did was it sent a message to the rest of the world, uh, to international travelers, that Canada was not open. And so we saw um very little international travel coming into Canada uh, in in the last um I guess since the PCR test was put in place mm-hmm. um and that has had a huge impact on our industry you know travel and tourism in, in Canada is 105 billion with a b billion dollars a year industry prior to covid and for the last two years we've been less than half of that um and that is you know, uh, you know, taking money right out of our economy um, and having a huge impact on, you know, people who own businesses, on people who work in the travel and tourism industry. Um, and so this is, like I say, it's welcome
3: to news.
2: So there is still a testing requirement uh, for anyone entering Canada, be it returning travellers or international visitors, but how significant is this change to allow for the option of a rapid antigen test?
1: So it's a significant change, and we hope that this is just another step towards getting to no testing required at all for fully vaccinated travelers. Um, but, you know, a rapid test is uh, easier to access. Um, you can get the results right away, and there's um, less expense associated with it. So these, these are all good things um, that will make it easier for leisure and business travelers to resume coming to Canada.
2: And what about the travel advisory? I mean, you know, words matter in this context. Uh so the federal government's moving away some of those recommendations against non essential travel. Is that gonna have an impact as well, do you think?
1: Believe it or not, it really does. Um because, yeah. you know, the 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 language there where they're saying now is not the time to travel, that language said to travelers who are looking to make um, you know, vacu- you know, bookings, um, okay, maybe not now. So it it it's um, really prevented them from you know, making that click um, with their mouse to 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 make a purchase, and um, and when we see these announcements come through, and the last time that the blanket travel announcement was lifted, we saw a a very big pickup in bookings, um, both you know Canadians booking travel outside of Canada, within Canada, but also international visitors coming to Canada. So it, it is significant. The other thing that people may not understand um, as well is that uh, if there's a travel advisory in place like that, um, it has an impact on your ability or the cost of your travel insurance. And so uh, the fact that that has been uh, removed... Uh, that will also help travelers um, as they look to to pick up some travel insurance before they go uh, before they go on vacation
2: yeah well, so this takes effect february twenty eighth I guess as we get closer to the summer travel season what what are you hoping to see I mean the, the health minister says you know this is all constantly being reviewed and hopefully this continues to trend in the right direction but what what do you think is is reasonable and achievable in in the months ahead? What else is the industry still still looking to see
1: well you know, obviously, we would like to see no testing requirements at all for fully vaccinated <laughs> travelers, um, and um, we would like to see um, you know Canada's brand start to shine again. Um, you know, the industry has spent um, you know the last number of months putting all kinds of you know health and safety and hygiene protocols in place to make sure that they're providing a a great uh, experience and in a safe environment for their guests. Um, we're hoping that we're going to see more Canadians booking uh, Canadian vacations this summer and continuing that exploration of their own country that they've started in you know during the pandemic. Um, but we also hope to see more uh, international visitors uh, choosing to come back to Canada. We are blessed with you know big wide open spaces um, and some absolutely amazing uh, experiences, um, whether it's, you know, taking in an Indigenous experience or, you know, uh, an amazing festival in one of our urban centres or coming to Canada for business. I mean, we've got lots on offer and we want to, we're ready to welcome the
2: world back. All right. Well, some good news today. We'll see where it all goes from here. Beth Potter, thanks so much for making some time for us this afternoon. Much appreciated.
1: Thanks very much.
2: All the best. Beth Potter, President, CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. So a lot of recovery is still necessary in that sector. This is a step in the right direction. So, you know, we think of it in terms of, you know, the impact on Canadians who want to travel abroad. But there's the other side of it, too, as she mentioned, uh, you know, the massive drop-off in international travel to Canada. And that's that's part of what we want to see recover, you know, to make it easier on Canadians to, to have a vacation, but also to recognize the impact of having foreign tourists coming to Canada, To vacation and how we made it uh that much more difficult certainly discouraged it so hopefully things keep trending in the right direction here as she said i mean maybe we can get to a point in a few months here where there really is no testing requirement thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast don't forget to subscribe rate and review for free at apple Podcasts, google play or wherever you find your podcast you can also find me on twitter at rob breakenridge you can email me rob at 770chqr.com talk to you next time